Well, hey, good morning, New Life Fellowship. Really good to be here with you this morning. Uh, welcome to our youth students as well who are joining us right now. And welcome to those of you uh, joining us uh, live online uh, or even after the fact uh, on YouTube or on podcast. Welcome. Um, uh, just a quick note, Pastor Kenny was just letting me know that if you do want to serve, uh, we have a serve uh, website, a serve button on our webpage. You can click that and it will take you to opportunities for you uh, to serve. Uh, well, you know, youth students, I just want to address you really quickly as I normally do. This is is just as much your service as it is your parents' service. Um, I want you to know that if you ever want to get involved up here, doing anything really welcoming and whatnot, we want you to get involved uh, because what we uh, have uh, read in, in, in research literature is that uh, really youth students who thrive in their faith have lots and lots of adult relationships in their lives, not just their parents, but other adults in their lives who love Jesus, uh, who, who love um, uh, working for Jesus and doing the things of God. And so um, we really want you to be interactive with all these different adults here. Uh, and I know, uh, uh, you know, one of the things I want to share with you, youth students, uh, is a little dirty secret here is that, uh, you know, you think, oh, I'm afraid to talk to adults, but I'll tell you this, adults are just as afraid to talk to you, okay? Uh, I, I'm definitely afraid of youth students, of teenagers, okay? Uh, um, but, uh, but so that's, that's the dirty little secret, okay? Like, if you're afraid to talk to an adult, uh, just know that the adults are just as afraid to talk to you. Uh, they feel like they're not cool enough to be around you or whatnot, so uh, just know that it's equal in both uh, ways. And so, but I do encourage uh, every adult in here to get to know a youth student, just to, um, just to you know, walk alongside them as well, because we want to be an intergenerational church. We want to walk alongside other people who are not of our generation, and that goes across church lines. If you're 20s, we want you to know 40s. If you're 40s, we want you to know 60s. If you're 60s, we want you to know 20s, etc., etc., okay? Uh, well, we're going to uh, dive into the second part of our sermon series on Mark chapter 13. Last week, we looked at most of Mark chapter 13, and what we talked about last week was that Mark chapter 13 was about the end of the temple, not about the end of the world. So in other words, Mark chapter 13 has already happened. It's already occurred. And so if you did not listen to that sermon, you can go back uh, you know, via podcast or YouTube and listen to that sermon again. I detail a case for why uh, Mark chapter 13 is not about uh, the end times, but rather about, uh, Jesus, uh, about the destruction of the temple and the beginning of Christianity. Uh, uh, but this week, uh, we're going to finish off Mark chapter 13 in verse 32, and now we will talk about the end, because Jesus, as I mentioned last week, uh, the Jews connected the destruction of the temple uh, to the end of the world, and so Jesus now has to turn his attention to the end of the world and now talk about that. And so he's going to tell us about how it is that we can anticipate really his coming once again. Uh, so with that said... I have four points, and these four points are uh, serving as uh, sort of negative ways in which we can anticipate God. And then uh, the, 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 sorry, the first three points are negative ways, and then the final point is sort of a positive way in which we can anticipate the coming of Christ once again. And so those four points are this, uh, not resting well, junk food, starvation, and then finally love. Okay? So with that said, if you would all rise with me, we're going to read Mark chapter 13, 32 to 37. Uh, if you're at home, please rise as well. I know it's a little awkward while you're cooking bacon, but, um, but please do it, uh, you know, and, and just read along with us uh, in spirit. But let me go ahead and read this for us. I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, if you could respond with thanks be to God, out of reverence and honor for the reading of God's word, and then I'll pray for us, and I'll seat you after the reading. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. 
Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we just want to thank you for these words. Lord, we thank you for your coming once again. We pray and ask, Lord, that you would help us to anticipate Um, But at the same time, Lord, would you help us to remain faithful as a church? Uh, We thank you, Lord. Would your Holy Spirit be present with here, opening up our ears and our eyes to really learn and to seek you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, You can go ahead and be seated. Um, Okay, so we're going to jump into our first point, not resting well. Uh, This passage, uh, very, very easy to understand. No introduction necessary, okay? It's super clear, super easy to understand. So here's two things that Jesus is saying in this passage. One is you don't know when I'm coming back. That's one of the main points, right? Uh, Very quickly, verse 32, 33, and 35. Let's look at those three verses, okay? But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Okay, you can underline that. Verse 33, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. Verse 35, therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come. Three times, you don't know, you don't know, you don't know, okay? Second point that Jesus is making here, stay awake, all right, stay awake for the sermon, stay awake for uh, spiritually, uh, you know, uh, sleepiness. But here, verse 33, 35, and 37, we'll just look at this quickly. 33, he says, be on guard, keep awake. In fact, that word be on guard is sort of the, the phrase awake. So he's like saying, stay awake, stay awake. Uh, verse 35, therefore, stay awake. Verse 37, and what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. So the point is clear. You don't know, so stay awake. You don't know, so stay awake. Um, But what I think is really interesting is human nature-wise, you know, I think we have this infatuation with the future. And I'll explain a little bit more why I think that is, but we have an infatuation with the future. In fact, this is across all fields, right? Let's take Christianity, for example. In Christianity, as I mentioned last week, pastors are so uh, just uh, enamored by this idea that you can open up a newspaper and perhaps predict the end of the world. And so we spend countless hours trying to predict the end of the world. Uh, in in uh, Christianity as well, we love our prophets, don't we? We love people with the gift of prophecy. Please tell me the future. Pray to the Holy Spirit. Ask what's in the future for me. Am I going to marry this person? Am I not going to marry this person? Am I going to go get this job? Am I going to move there? Please tell me, oh prophet. We're infatuated with the future. In politics, sports, business, leadership, we're always interested in forecasting the future. In fact, many of your jobs, in fact, the, the guy I baptized here uh, a, while, uh, you know, a few weeks ago or a few months ago, uh, Min, his job is to forecast the future for Amazon, right? How many products are we going to sell? Uh, how many workers do we need to hire in these warehouses in order to supply all of this product across the world? Forecasting the future. This is why we love sports commentators, right? All they do is forecast who's going to win the Super Bowl, who's going to win this game. We love uh, listening to entertainment news, right? Who's going to win the Oscars? Who's not going to win the Oscars, right? Et cetera, et cetera. We're infatuated with the future. In fact, when you were little kids, I'm sure, or if you're a youth student now, you may play this game where you make the little origami mouth, right? And then you choose a number and then you do one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. You open up the flap and it tells you your future. Or I don't know if you were, when you were even littler, you played a game called MASH. Or you guys remember this game? Uh, MASH, I think the acronym stands for Mansion, Apartment, Shack, or House. And it was supposed to determine whether or not you would live in the future in a mansion, apartment, shack, and house. And every single time, I don't know why, I always got shack, right? which is why I thought I was going to be a pastor. <laughs> we love our fortune cookies. right? We love these things. Why? Because we're infatuated with the future. 
And here's my running thesis, right? It's we love knowing the future because ultimately the future gives us a sense of power and control, right? It gives us a sense of power and control. This is why we want to know the future. Uh, let me sort of prove this to you, right? There's a phrase that we use oftentimes that goes something like this, the future is uncertain. And what that phrase essentially communicates is that I'm anxious about something because the future is uncertain. That's, in other words, a euphemism for anxiety, when the future is uncertain, we are in a state of anxiety. And yet knowing the future, knowing that our calendars are all lined up for this year, knowing exactly what's going to happen gives us a sense of power, control, and it gives us comfort knowing what's going to come. Our desire to know the future and forecast is really all about power and control. And here's the amazing thing about this passage, okay? This is, lean in now, because I think this is fascinating about this passage and something I read in a commentary. This is one of the uh, few times, and this is the first time in the Gospel of Mark. Mind you, Gospel of Mark is only 16 chapters. We're in the 13th chapter, right? It's only three chapters left. A lot of time has passed. Jesus has never, ever declared himself the Son of God in the Gospel of Mark yet. And yet it's here where he describes himself as the Son of God coming in clouds of glory. And yet it's only here when he describes himself as a Son of God coming in clouds of glory is when he also simultaneously tells us that he does not know the future. It's the only time where he says, I, I don't know. I don't know when I'm going to come back. Only the Father knows. I can, I, I can transfigure on a mountain with all of this glory and wonder. I can cast out legions of demons. I can walk on water. I can calm storms. I'm God. I'm divine in all these different ways. But with the future, I don't know. It's interesting. Right? I mean, of course, Jesus could know when he's going to come back, but he chooses not to know that future point in time. And, I, and, I, and what's interesting even f further still is that the disciples, who are, of course, the buffoons in the story at the very beginning of the gospel of Mark chapter 13, are curious about the future. Right? Look at Mark chapter 13, verse 4 again. It says this, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished. Doesn't that sound like us? Tell us when, tell us when, tell us when, tell us the future. And yet by connecting his divinity okay, to not knowing the future, what Jesus is ultimately, ultimately telling us is that if you want true power, if you want to truly be divine, it's actually about trusting in God in your present. It's about trusting the Father today with your present. It's not about casting yourself to the future, always thinking about the future, predicting the future, trying to get whatever, right? It's about trusting in God with all of your circumstances, you're truly divine when you actually trust God without knowing the future. Let me ask you, is there something about your future, maybe in your near future, that is uncertain? And is that uncertainty right now causing you anxiety? Maybe it's your career. You don't know where you're going to be. Maybe it's your housing. It's uncertain. Maybe it's your children. You don't know where they're going to end up, whether at this college or this high school or whatnot. Maybe it's your retirement. It's uncertain right now. You don't have enough retirement in your, in your savings or in your 401k. Maybe it's your marriage, right? Maybe it's what college you're going to go to or what high school you're going to go to or whatnot. Let me put everything I'm saying back together here. Jesus is saying, no one can know when I'm coming back and neither can anyone really know the future for that fact. So stop predicting my coming back and, and instead stay alert, stay awake, 
okay? Now, let me talk a little bit about what I think Jesus means by stay alert, stay away, because I think he tells us here. In verse 34, he enters into this little parable. He gives us a little parable on top of this teaching. And listen to what he says. He says, it is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servant in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake, okay? Therefore, stay awake. That word for commands, okay, you, should, you can underline that in your Bibles. What that word is used again for is in Matthew chapter 28, when Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have commanded you to do. Staying alert means doing the commands of Christ. It means working for Christ. It means living out the commands. Go and read Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 to learn about the commands. But what you'll find out in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 is this. That Jesus' commands are not future-oriented. They're present circumstances. He wants us to be present. It's loving, giving, serving, forgiving. In fact, there's that famous passage of Matthew where he says, Leave your offering at the altar. If you have bitterness against somebody, leave and go do it now. Don't think about the future. Like, do it now. My commands are present. Stop dreaming about the future. In other words, let me kind of put everything back together of what I'm saying now. Instead of forecasting, instead of spending your time and your energy forecasting, obey my commands now. Instead of forecasting all the ways your children could be jacked up in the future, which is what we parents do all the time. We're like, oh, what if they go this route and this happens? What if this goes right and this happens and this and this? Oh, but if this happens, that would be great, right? All the ways we forecast, instead of that, we could be listening, spending time and energy and loving our children today. Instead of forecasting all the ways in which we'll be single for the rest of our lives or the ways in which we can escape our singleness, love the people around you presently today, serving, loving, giving, and forgiving them today. Instead of forecasting all the ways in which you will become successful and famous, be present at your work, be diligent in your work today, helping your teammates today, being there for them today, now, present. Christians are present people, not future people. We have future hopes that Jesus will come back again, but we live presently, serving, loving, and giving. Jesus in this passage is telling us to stay spiritually awake, and yet do you know why we get tired spiritually speaking and why we fall asleep spiritually? Let me kind of relate this to the physical world now, okay? We get spiritually sleep sleepy for the same reasons we get physically sleepy, which is very simple. We don't get enough rest. Like, we just don't sleep enough, right? Um, maybe for some of you, you were up late last night Netflixing, you know, uh, you know, wee hours in the morning, Korean dramas. Maybe you had to work last night into the wee hours. Maybe you were just scrolling through Instagram for hours and hours, maybe, and whatever, whatnot, but it kept you awake for a long time, so you only got five or six hours, and so this morning, you're groggy. Uh, whatever the case is, what makes us tired oftentimes is the fact that we just don't get enough sleep. And spiritually speaking, the same thing is true. The reason why we get spiritually sleepy is because we're not resting in Christ. We're not trusting Him today. We're always forecasting, anxious about the future. We're not trusting Him with today. And so my question is, are you resting in Christ? Are you trusting in Him? Or are you continuously worried, anxious, and thinking of and trying to control and predict future outcomes in order for the greatest amount of success and glory in your life? Do you know how we know we're spiritually tired? Here's one of the, the tests that you can give yourself, right? And it's the same thing that happens to us physically. And this is, like, literally, I just injected this into my sermon this morning because it literally happened last night, which is, I know my son is tired because he gets cranky. And we get, and you can know you're spiritually tired when you're cranky. 
Um, my son last night, for example, um, he was just throwing a fit because we had bought him new Legos. And he wanted to build those Legos today, now. And so I told Josiah, my son, no, you can't build them today. You've got to go to sleep so you can get some rest. And then you can build it tomorrow morning. And he threw a fit. This is the first, I, we've never, my, 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 oh my God, I won't say my mom and I, oh. Uh, my wife and I, uh, for the first time, heard my son like grunting and complaining and moaning. But what we also knew was that my son was really tired. He didn't sleep very well the night before. He didn't take his usual nap. And so he was tired and it was late at night. And for the first time, my son looked at me and he says, I don't like you, dad. And I was like, oh, it kind of hurt, but I had to stay strong. I was like, I was like forget you. Go to your room, right? Um, but I knew that he was cranky and tired, and so even this morning, I went to him and I said, Josiah, do you remember what you said to daddy? He's like, oh, I'm sorry you know, for saying that. He was fine in the morning after getting some rest. And in the same way, are you spiritually cranky at God? Are you throwing temper tantrums at God, blaming him for all the wrong things in your life? Are you complaining? Are you pointing out all the ways to God in which your life sucks and why it's not as great as this person's life is? Are you busy complaining about your life that you forgot to obey God now and serve others now? Perhaps it's because you're not resting in God and trusting in God today. Let's move on to our second point, junk food, okay? Um, one of the things my wife found, about, uh, found out about me early on in our marriage is that I'm a master sleeper. I know everything there is to sleep very, very well. Um, and I, e even on our honeymoon night, um, I, man, I passed out. Like as soon as my head touches the pillow, uh, you know, my wife had all these dreams about doing pillow talk at night, um, being able to like, you know, uh, you know, debrief our day and doing all these things. And then, but <laughs> as soon as I put my head down on the pillow, I was out. I, would, I just started snoring. And she was like, oh my gosh, this guy doesn't love me. He doesn't care about me. He just loves his sleep so much. But I, I can tell you this, I know how to fall asleep really well, and one of the ways in which you can fall asleep well is simply by eating a ton of junk food, right? Eat fried chicken, eat fried chicken wings, eat turkey legs, fried turkey legs, uh, you know, dip some steak in butter, fry it in butter, eat it, and then turn on a PBS documentary, um, maybe about history, and then lay down on your couch, and I promise you, you will have a great night of rest, okay? You will sleep really, really well. In the same way, if you want to fall asleep, spiritually speaking, I think you just have to ingest a lot of junk food. If you just ingest tons and tons of junk food into your souls, you will fall asleep spiritually. Um, it's interesting. Do you know where else? There's these few words used here. Stay awake, right? This word stay awake is used elsewhere in the Gospel of Mark. In Mark chapter 14. The very next passage, right? Jesus is going to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to go and pray, and he's going to go and ask the Father to let this cup pass for me, and he's going to cry and sweat uh, uh, blood drops, and he's going to cry out to the Father. And here he tells his disciples to watch. And this word watch is the same word as stay awake. And listen to what happens here, right? In verse 33 of Mark chapter 14. It'll be up here on the screens for you. And he took with him... so. He leaves behind eight disciples, right? Judas goes to betray him, uh, and then he goes, and then he leaves three more disciples behind. He takes three, James, Peter, and John, okay? So he took three with him, Peter, James, and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. You have to remember, okay? Jesus Christ was the most confident human being on planet Earth. Do you remember when there was a storm what was he doing in the midst of a storm on a boat? He was sleeping. He had no anxiety. He had no worries. He had nothing, right? He was sleeping. So the disciples are walking with Jesus for three years, and they're like, this, nothing phases this guy. He's just calm, non-anxious presence all the time. 
But then here comes this time now where he's distressed. It says greatly distressed and troubled. And then he actually tells his disciples, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And then going on a little bit further, right? Look at verse 35 here now. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. So in other words, he leaves his eight, he leaves his three, and then he just goes a little bit further so he's out of sight from his disciples so they don't see him doing this. And he falls to the ground and he just starts weeping and praying. This is how troubled Jesus is. He can't even wait to get a little bit further. Now, I'm, I'm not that important. I'm not saying that I'm any equivalence of importance to Jesus, but just imagine with me one day I'm preaching up here and I start freaking out. And I have a meltdown. I just start, I, I just tell you, guys, I, I'm done preaching. And I just walk off the stage and I go out these doors and you guys just hear me crying. That would impact you at some level, I think. Now imagine the disciples, right? They've been walking with Jesus for three years. They love Jesus. They, 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 he's their master. He's their uh, rabbi. He's everything to them. And then he's just breaking down and crying. This would cause you great distress if you were a disciple. And in fact, the gospel of Luke tells us this in Luke chapter 22, verse 45. It'll be up here on the screens for you. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. You see, Jesus left them watch. He left to pray. He came back and he found them sleeping. And he was like, hey, get up. Can't you sleep? Look, he says the flesh is weak, but the spirit is willing. Like pray that you might not fall into temptation. He goes away again. He comes back. They're sleeping again. And finally in the gospel, of Luke, it tells us that when he comes back for the third time, they're still sleeping. And they're sleeping because they're sorrowful. And they're sorrowful ultimately because Jesus is sorrowful. And they've seen their master just, just balled up in tears. Do you know what makes us spiritually sleepy? It's sorrow. And you know what we do with our sorrow is we fill up our sorrow with distractions. And we fill up those sorrows with junk food. We fill it up with noise like Netflix and podcasts and YouTube and games and social media and hobbies. And we fill it up with our work and our success and our fame and acquiring a house. We distract ourselves from what's ultimately deep inside of us, which is a kind of sorrow. A sorrow that we're limited as human beings, that one day we will die, that one day we will perish, that one day all of these things will not last. There's a deep sadness and sorrow in every human being. And this is why, friends, this is why we'll talk about this when we get to the spiritual practices, but one of the things we'll talk about is silence and solitude. And this is what silence and solitude does for us, is it brings out this sorrow once again. Try sitting and reflecting for 30 minutes, doing nothing. Don't wash the dishes. Don't drive a car. Just sit and meditate and be with yourself and with God and see the thoughts that come to your mind. It will fill up with sorrow and anxiety. This is why, I, to be honest with you, I'm afraid to sit in silence and solitude because I know what's coming. My sorrow is coming. My sorrow is awaiting me, which I've been distracting myself from all this time. Hey, when we sit in silence and solitude, what we do is we feel our sorrows, we feel our anxieties, and we say, Christ, why don't you take this for me? First Peter tells us to cast our cares upon the Lord because he cares for us. Instead of sweeping it under the rug and distracting ourselves with all the different things of this world, he says, bring it to me and cast it upon me because this is how we will grow in intimacy. Don't fill up your lives with junk food. Fill up your lives with the things of God. The scriptures tell us to cast our cares upon the Lord, to cast our sorrows and our anxieties upon him, for he is good and he cares for us. 
Look, if you want to fall asleep spiritually, keep distracting yourself. These things, by the way, are not bad inherently. It's not bad to eat a good meal. It's not bad to sit down and watch a good TV show. These are not bad, and we'll talk about that in the disciplines as well. There's a discipline called celebration, and we want to celebrate the things of life. But at the same time, we don't want to be consumed by them to the point where we're distracting ourselves from the things of God. Let's move on to our third point, starvation. Eating too little bit also makes you sleepy. Did you know that? Um, as, as you can tell, right now, I'm not going to speak from experience, okay? As you can tell just by looking at me, I've never starved a day in my life, okay? Um, and so this is not from experience. This is from reading stuff, okay? Um, uh, but I'm also assuming that none of you have ever starved to death, right, or have been on the brink of starvation. Um, but, but what they say, though, uh, is that when you are starving, when you're truly in starvation, uh, you actually get very tired. And one of the symptoms of starvation is actually sleepiness. In fact, they ask people uh, if they're, uh, you know, people who are starving, they, they will tell people who are starving to stay awake. Because if you don't stay awake, you could actually die in your sleep. This is what starvation feels like. And if you spiritually want to fall asleep, just take away the word of God, which Jesus calls bread. Right? He says, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Right? If you want to uh, die spiritually, if you want to starve spiritually, take away prayer. What does Jesus tell his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane? He says, pray and watch. Pray and fight against temptation. Pray against the devil. Pray against these things. Pray. So read your Bibles. Pray. And if you don't do these things, you will be spiritually malnourished. And I think what oftentimes happens in the church is we come here on Sundays hoping to be fed and we maybe do get fed and maybe we put out a little buffet lunch, spiritually speaking, right? You eat, but then during the weeks you just starve. You just keep starving and starving and starving. And then you expect that just coming to church will fill you up again. But friends, think about it. If you ate a buffet every week and then you went home and ate nothing, you would, you would start to lose a ton of weight. It's not enough for you. We have to continuously be feeding ourselves spiritually, reading the word, praying, celebrating, really uh, asking of the Lord, thanksgiving, these kinds of things, friends, communing with God, filling up ourselves with God himself. Here's the fourth and final thing, love. Okay, so we just talked about three negative things, three things that will essentially help you to fall asleep, right? Uh, not resting well, uh, eating junk food, starvation, but now let's talk about something positive. Let's talk about something that will now help you to actually move further now, to actually, to actually stay awake, to actually not fall asleep now, okay? Um, and, and it's really this. I'll kind of just say it, which is loving the task or the person. Love will ultimately keep you awake, in other words. Uh, my wife uh, has fallen asleep in every single movie we've ever watched in the history of our marriage. That is not an overstatement. Every single movie. Um, even Spider-Man, which is one of my favorite movies now, okay? The youth students know. Um, Spider-Man is my favorite movie, the most recent one, that is. And even in that movie, which I thought was so fantastic, she was like snoring in it. I was like, how do you snore while Tom Holland is doing backflips here? Like, I can't, I don't imagine this, right? Um, but literally every movie we've ever watched, she's fallen asleep. Even one of the movie recommendations she had, which was Les Miserables. I'm not a very cultured person. I don't, you know, like musicals that much. I'm not really a fan of musicals, but I watched it for her, right? And even in that movie, she fell asleep. And I had to watch Russell Crowe singing by himself, you know, and whatever. Who else? Uh... But there was one movie, one movie, and I still remember this movie, right, uh, that she stayed awake in. And it was the movie La La Land with uh, Ryan Gosling and uh, I think it's Emma Stone. Is that right? Emma Stone, yeah. And I'm pretty sure it's because she likes Ryan Gosling, but she won't admit it, right? <laughs> 
But throughout that whole movie, she stayed awake, singing, the dancing, right? The love story, right? All of this stuff, right? She stayed awake. Why? Because she actually loved the movie. She loved the storyline. She loved the actors. She loved the plot line. She loved these things about it. We will not get tired. We will never grow weary if we love the task or the person we're doing everything for. Look at me at verse 34 and 35. Uh, this is the parable again, right? He says, it is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning. When I was growing up in church, this passage was always presented or this parable was always presented to me in a fear-based way. It was sort of like this, hey, you better knock off all that evil stuff or else if the master comes and finds you doing it, oh, hell it is. You know, you're going to get fired from heaven, you know, and go into the fiery pits. You know, it was presented to me in that way of that you better be on your best behavior. What staying alert means is be on your best behavior because you don't want the master to come find you not in your best behavior because if he does find you, he's going to fire you and you won't make it to heaven. And guess what's waiting for you instead is the fires of hell or something like that. And yet when I reread this passage again, and especially in light of one commentator and some of the things that he had, he had talked about, the, he, he gives a whole new light to this. I want you to look at these four words here, okay? In verse 35, it says, evening, midnight, when the rooster crows, and the morning. This is what they call the four watches of the Roman night. The Jewish people had three watches of the night. And later on, in, in, the, in the crucifixion narrative, right, because we're in Mark chapter 13, right after now is the crucifixion narrative. Throughout that crucifixion narrative, Mark makes it a point to give us the times of, of the night. So in Mark chapter 14, verse 17, he says this, and it was evening when, the disciple, when, uh, when he came with the, the, with the 12. See how he tells us it's evening now. Uh, in, uh, in Mark chapter 14, verse 72, he says this, and immediately the rooster crowed a second time. You see, he's signaling a time of the night. And Peter remembered how he said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And then finally, Mark chapter 15, mind you now, it's only 16 chapters long. So uh, Mark chapter 15, as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Do you know what binds these three hours of the night, these three watches? Because in this time, they, they talk about the four Roman watches, but it, in the subsequent passages, they talk about the Jewish watches of the night, only three. But what binds it all together is this, Mark chapter 14, verse 15, 50, sorry. And they all left him and fled. Do you see what happens at every watch of the night? Is the disciples fall asleep on him. They betray him. We oftentimes think Peter was the only one who denied him, but that's not right. All the disciples fled and left him. Every single one of them. Every single one of them betrayed him. During his crucifixion moment, Jesus was all alone. No one loved him. No one cared about him. No one was there standing by him. Peter maybe got the closest because he at least followed Jesus from a distance. But ultimately, no one, no one stayed awake. Everyone fell asleep. And yet what I think Mark and Jesus are telling us in this gospel is this, that even though they fell asleep, what does Jesus do when they fall asleep in the garden? He comes to them and does he say, get away, you, you know, let me burn you now or something, right? Does he do that? No, he says, hey, come on, stay awake, guys. He goes away again. He says, hey, come on, stay awake again. What is, he's gracious to them. And even right before he dies on a cross, he washes the disciples' feet. What is he telling us here? That even if, he were, even if we were to fall asleep, his grace abounds all the more. That his grace would lift us back up. 
That even if we were to fall asleep, that he is there to pick us back up, to wash us, and to give us hope once again. Over and over and over again. And so when it's talking about here, this master coming home, what, what, the way I read it is in light of what happens later on, and then also in light of the fact that these workers actually love their master. And the reason why he says to stay awake is because, look, open the door when I get here because I want to come in. You're the doorkeeper. Let me in. And if you want me to come in, you've got to stay awake so you can let me in. Do you see how it's, a, it's love? It's love that drives these servants to stay awake so they can be awake when the master comes home so they can welcome him home. Not because they're going to be caught off guard and they're going to be sent to hell because of all of their bad deeds. It's a love that ultimately propels them to stay awake in this story. And look, it is upon these men who betray, who fall asleep on Jesus, that Jesus then builds his church upon these people. Peter, James, and John. And when Pentecost comes in Acts chapter 2 and the Holy Spirit fills them up and this love becomes absolutely real to them, they never ever fall asleep on Jesus Christ ever again. Church history tells us a few things. One is that Peter died on a, on a cross upside down. And it's because he didn't want to be crucified in the same way that Jesus was crucified because he was unworthy to be, to be killed in the same way that Jesus Christ was killed. John, the apostle, died alone on Patmos Island, exiled and all alone, tormented for the rest of his life. This is where he writes the book of Revelation. James, according to Josephus, was thrown down from the temple. This is crazy, okay? This is according to Josephus, who's a Jewish historian. He was thrown down from the temple. He survived, so they went down, they stoned him, but then he survived the stoning. So they took a club and they beat him to death, and all the while he never recanted his faith. Never once. He never fell asleep on Jesus ever again. Friends, what ultimately propelled the disciples to stay awake was not fear, it was love. And friends, in the same way, I, I want you to look at Mark 13 once again and see not fear. I don't want you to have those old messages or what, whatever's in your mind now of thinking, okay, if Jesus comes back, that means judgment day and I'm going to get persecuted and killed or whatever and judge. No, no, no. This is love that propels you. And this is why we should anticipate Jesus' return. Like these servants, we want the master to come back because he's good, he's gracious, he's loving, and we want to meet him once again, friends. This is what should propel us to stay awake. This is what should propel us to keep the, keep the commands. It's not fear, but love. And if you are not a Christian here, or if you're tuning in online, you're not a Christian, and you've grown up in, a, in, a, in, a, in an area or a, with a thought of Christianity that, man, these people just are fear-based. All the No, that's not right about Christianity. Our faith is a faith of love. Our faith is one where our Savior calls us from love and says, come and follow after me. Come and stay awake. Come and stay alert. Anticipate my return. Friends, ultimately, I, I want to encourage you. Look, during these next uh, 40 days, next week, um, we're going to have a one-off sermon by Pastor Clara. And then the following week after that, um, we're going to start the 40-day campaign. But when we start the 40-day campaign, we're going to start uh, immediately with something called fasting on Fridays. And one of the things that I want to encourage you to do is to fast with us. Do a full fast if you're medically able to. And one of the things that we're doing in the fast, and I'll preach on this uh, hopefully in one of the first few messages so we get a good sense of what fasting is, is that fasting is really an anticipation for the kingdom to come once again. It's us starving our bodies in order to feed our souls. It's starving our bodies to, to hunger and thirst spiritually for righteousness once again. To hunger and thirst for the coming of the kingdom of God. To see his kingdom expand over and against the very joys of food itself. I mean, I'm telling you, I love, love, love food. That's why my sermons are filled with food. People always comment, your sermons are filled. It's because I love food. 
And yet when we sacrifice food and we say, I'm going to hunger and thirst over and against the things of this world for the coming of God's kingdom, I'm going to hunger and thirst for God himself, this is what we're doing in our fast, friends. And as we're fasting, we should be praying, come, Lord Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Make your kingdom known. Expand your kingdom. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Make more believers. Spread your gospel to the ends of the earth. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Because we want to hunger and thirst, not for the things of this world, but for Christ and for his coming kingdom. And friends, I hope and I pray that you would endeavor to do these spiritual practices with us. I think if you want to, you know, you're, you're saved by grace. Don't get me wrong. You are absolutely saved by grace. But there is this thing that the Apostle Paul reiterates again and again and again throughout his letters. And he compares our spiritual life to that of an athlete. And he says to work it out. He says to run this race, to, to practice. He says, to, he talks about godliness as practicing it. I was telling our college students this week that I started watching this YouTube guy called Wilderness Cooking. He lives in a country called Azerbaijan. I think it's in the Middle East somewhere. And all he does is cook outdoors. He fries these steaks and lambs and whatever, right, outdoor. All of his cooking is outdoor. And I've been watching these now for at least six months. I've watched all of his videos pretty much. And guess what? I've watched every single one, but if you were to ask me, Eric, do you now know how to cook in the wilderness? I will tell you absolutely not. Because I've never practiced it. I've never went out and built a fire now. I've never went out and skinned a lamb like he does. I've never, you know, chopped up lamb and made a kebab and stuck it on the metal skewers and fried it over this little hot coal thing that he makes. Right? I've never done it. I've never practiced it. In the same way, if you want intimacy with Christ, you can't just hear somebody teach on it. You can't just watch somebody preach on it. You can't just watch it. You have to practice it. Which is why we're encouraging every single person to practice the disciplines, to practice these things. Why? Because if we want to grow in godliness, if we want to be saved, yes, it's a free gift. We take it. But if we want to grow in godliness, we have to practice these things. We have to put it into practice. Why? So that we can grow and really uh, come into contact with Jesus once again. The practices are not piety. They're not piety for the sake of piety. They are ways for us to really engage and commune with the living God and to really grow in love for God and love for other people. Amen? Let me pray for us. Oh Lord Jesus, as we um, exit this Mark 13 mini, mini series, Lord, and as we um, begin thinking about entering into the New Life Old Disciplines uh, series in the 40-day campaign, Lord, would you... Would you set our hearts and our minds again, Lord, not on the things of this earth, but the things of heaven. Lord, where, 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 where moth will not be able to eat, where rust will be able to decay anything, Lord, in the kingdom of heaven. Lord, may you continuously help us, God, to meditate on you and your love and your grace. God, may we be people of thankfulness and love and joy and ultimately of generosity and forgiveness and justice, Lord. But Lord, it all begins with our relationship with you. We will be able to love, forgive, serve, do acts of justice, Lord, once we are connected to the Father once again. And so, Lord, help us to practice these things. Would you give us the motivation once again, Lord? Would you resurrect our hearts once again to you, Lord? Lord, if there are those in this place, God, who have always been afraid of you, 
Lord, would you cast out that fear with love? Lord, for those of us in this place who have been starving, Lord, because we have not fed our souls, Lord, would you supernaturally resurrect their hearts and their appetites right now, Lord, so that they would hunger for your word, for your righteousness. Lord, for those of us in this place who have been practicing, who have been faithful with you, Lord, would you continuously give us endurance, Lord, so that we may continuously chase after you, O Lord. But Lord, may New Life Fellowship be a church, Lord, where we're not half in and half out, Lord, but where we're fully devoted to you, Lord, to your son Jesus and to your works, Lord. We thank you, God, for this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.